Oh, Jan, did you work on that all week? That, uh, do you, just in case, is that what you had planned? <laughs> Let's turn to Psalm 110 this morning. There are many messianic psalms, perhaps none more clear than this, because uh, Jesus refers to this one specifically, and in fact, as, as we'll see, he challenges some of those who had some questions for him with, how do you understand this psalm? So if you're able, would you stand with me, and I'll read Psalm 110 this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come upon us with your Holy Spirit, that our eyes would be open to the truth of your word, that we would see it and understand it, that it not only would penetrate our minds, but it would penetrate our very beings, that we would live out the things that we find here. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 110, it is a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, thy youth are to thee as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at thy right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now, you want to keep your finger there, but let's turn over to Luke chapter 20 right now. So we're there, because that's where we're going to go as well in the New Testament. Luke chapter 20. Now, it was Mark Twain, I believe, who said, It's not the stuff in the Bible that I don't understand that bothers me. It's the stuff in the Bible that I do understand that bothers me. It's not as if we have to go looking for the obscure in Scripture and and scratch our heads and go, "I, I don't know what that means, and then get hung up on that. There are plenty of simple things in Scripture that we get hung up on, you know, that love your neighbor. Uh, kind of thing, uh, you know, uh, give all that you have to the Lord and trust him. And, and how do you live out that call to trust the Lord? Now, he's given us smarts, he's given us abilities, but he says, trust him for everything. And how is it that we, it says, you know, it says rejoice in these things. How can we find joy in some of the things that really bother us or really stretch us or things that we don't particularly like? But yet, that is the truth of Scripture. So one of the questions is, what do we do with truth? Especially when truth is, how shall I say, uh, uncomfortable, uh, when it doesn't fit our agenda, when it goes against everything that we think we like or we think who we are. What do you do with truth? Well, the means to deal with truth that we don't like, historically speaking, has been to tell a very big lie and to tell it often. Okay? 
Now, all we have to do is look at this application in the 1930s in Germany, and how is it that you can convince an entire nation that the problems of your nation are the are the the, the issues are, are, are the fault of a small Jewish population. And if we can get rid of them, then our problems will be eradicated. Well, you say it, tell a lie and you say it often and often. How is it that you can be convinced that this obscure little kitchen gadget is something that you can't live without? Okay, well, you, you hear about it in a, from a person who is very excited about this kitchen gadget, and he talks very quickly, and he tells you it's the most wonderful thing in the world, and he says it in a very loud voice at 2 a.m. on the Shopping Network channel. And then you decide, I can't live without it. And you have to have it, okay? You tell something over and over again, and before long, people begin to believe it. Now, when we come up against a truth we don't like, we simply have to change it. I mean, we, we can't argue against the truth because it's a truth, so we come up with another truth. It's not Christmas, it's the holiday season, right? Now, to sing a traditional Christmas song in a school might be to, I don't know, corrupt young minds, and, and they might actually think and, and begin to believe something. Or to have a Christmas decoration on a public land might be the end of society as we know it. And we have to hear these things every year. But they can't drown out or hide the truth that Christmas is a celebration of the birth of the Savior. It's not one of the saviors. It's not one of the means of salvation. It is the birth of the only means of salvation that there is. There's truth in Scripture, and it bothers us. Now, for believers, it bothers us that we don't live all of it. We don't live it all out, or we, we have trouble uh, you know, conforming our lives to it. For non-believers, the, the trouble is that it simply exists, and they don't like the fact that truth exists in this fashion. But no matter how big of a lie you tell, or no matter how often you say it, Jesus Christ is the Lord. Jesus Christ is our Savior. It's his death. It's his resurrection. He is the only means of salvation. If you're hung up on some of the, the tougher things of Scripture, let's boil it down to something simple today. Okay, Christ is the King. Christ is our intercessor before the Lord. And Christ is our judge. Those are the three simple things and very straightforward. So that takes us to Luke chapter 20. Okay, and here in Luke chapter 20, we're going to find out about Psalm 110. Now, we'll go back to Psalm 110 in just a moment. But in, in Luke chapter 20, for the last 20 so verses, uh, we're going to start in verse 41, but for the last 20 or so verses, they have been attempting to play uh, Stump the Preacher. Okay, now there are a variety of, of radio programs. I don't think we get them here, but in other places you've got uh, the Bible Answer Man and things like that where people call up and they just have these, these questions and they want to know. And, and whether the guy has got uh, a computer that's really fast in front of him or a head full of all this knowledge, whatever it is, they call up and he seems to know it. Okay, well that's what the Pharisees and the scribes are attempting to do to Jesus. They're asking him these rather obscure questions about oh, a variety of issues, um, uh, you know, they, they, they are trying to lay hands on him and they can't. They are watching him. They sent spies uh, pretending to be righteous to try to infiltrate there. And finally they come up and they ask him questions in an attempt to stump the preacher. Well, it goes on and on uh, from about verse 19 down to uh, verse 40. 
uh, it says, for they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. They simply could not come up with a question that would stump Jesus. Now, really, is there any question that you can ask the Son of God that he doesn't already know? I mean, he created all things. All things were made by him and through him. Without him, nothing was made that came into being. It's pretty tough to stump him, okay? So Jesus turns the table on him. Verse 41. And he said to them, how is it that they say the Christ is David's son? Now, they've been asking him all these questions, and he turns the table and asks them a very simple question from the Old Testament that they should be able to answer. 42. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. David therefore calls him Lord. How is he his son? Now, just here's your quick linguistic lesson here. Uh, If you go back, if you kept your finger in Psalms, go back to 110, keep your hand in Luke. You'll notice in Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord. Now, there is a distinction here that most translations make in the way that they present the word Lord. Uh, if you have a pew Bible, the New American Standard does it. It says the Lord, and it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is the way that the English translators signify the name for God the Father. Okay, This is Yahweh, Jehovah. This is God the Father. And then it says, it says to my Lord, capital L, small r, small r, small o, small r, small d. That is one who is superior. Adonai would be it referring to Christ. So the Heavenly Father says to my Lord, and that's David speaking. Jesus makes it clear we understand that he is the one who has written it. David, he is the one who sings it or speaks it. So David writes, Our Heavenly Father says to my Lord. Now, who is he referring to? Well, he's referring to Christ. Because Christ is David's Lord. So the Father says to his Son, David's Lord, the Messiah, yet who is also considered to be, what? Son of David. Because isn't that the the question here? How, in, in Luke 20, how is it that they say the Christ is David's Son? So we say, sit at my right hand. So how is this possible? So Jesus asked a very simple and straightforward question that is going to test these scribes, these Pharisees' understanding of who the Messiah is. Because immediately we find out that the Messiah cannot be simply a man, simply a human, because he is spoken of here by David as being existing already some six or eight hundred years before Christ is asking the Pharisees and the scribes this question. David calls him Lord, so how is he also his son? Okay, in Hebrew thought, the father is always greater than the son. Okay, the father always has a higher position than the son, and we see this in a variety of ways, um, you know, in respect for parents, respect for the father in particular. But here David is talking about the Messiah, his descendant, who is greater than than he is. David's descendant, the Messiah, is greater than David. And Jesus asked the simple question, how are you going to explain this, guys? What are you going to do with this? 
Well, Psalm 110 makes it very clear to us who Jesus is. And as I said earlier, he is the king, he is our priest who intercedes for us, and he is our judge as well. So Psalm 110, come back to that one, and let's look at verses 1, 2, and 3 first. Because it really divides into three sections, 1, 2, and 3, verse 4, and then 5, 6, and 7. Jesus is the king of all the earth. Jesus is the king of all the earth. Here's a discussion between two members of the Godhead. Heavenly Father says to his son, our Lord, the Messiah. Okay? So it's the person of Jesus is both God and man. This, is, it, this, this drives some people crazy, but yet this is the way that the Lord works. How can you have 100% man and 100% God all wrapped up in the same person? It is necessary Christ faced every temptation that we have, yet he was without sin. It's not as if in the midst of that temptation, in the midst of the time in the desert, the 40 days, things got so bad for him, Matthew chapter 4, his temptation, things got so bad for him that he said, I can't handle this as a man, I'm going to rely upon my deity to avoid temptation. No, he avoided temptation he was obedient to the lord in a perfect fashion that is his humanness but he is the one who is from all time so he is also divine you've got both of these natures wrapped up in one person and and the people that uh, uh, christ is talking to in in luke and in the parallel passage in matthew they just don't understand it they just can't get their head around it how is this possible how could this possibly be a reality He is both divine and human. He is both David's son and he is David's Lord. He is man and he is God. Now where does this Messiah dwell? Look at verse 1. Sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand. This refers to the position of Christ really after his resurrection after his ascension he ascends to the father and sits at the right hand and we say that every week right in the apostles creed 40 days after his resurrection he went up and that's where he dwells he sent the holy spirit on the day of pentecost to dwell within us the promised outpouring of the spirit he says i'm going to go i'm going to send you a comforter that's the holy spirit so psalm 110 looks to the present time where the Messiah, the risen Lord, sits at the right hand of our Heavenly Father. And yet the verse also shows us that his enemies are not yet subdued. The end of verse 1, until I make your enemies, thine enemies, a footstool for your feet. So what does it really mean to sit at the right hand? Well, the right hand is the place of power. The right hand is the place of authority. You'll notice that uh, often we find that, uh, what, Sheep to the right, goats to the left. Sheep are going where? Heaven. Goats are going where? Hell. Okay? It's very clear. It's always the right. The right is good. How many of you are left-handed? Mm-hmm. The only people in your right mind are left-handed. And that the way the brain works? Okay? Uh, but we know, know, know now this, this runs back as if my Latin... Uh, uh, is, is correct. Left in Latin is sine, and sine means sinister. So it was always thought that left-handed people were 
evil or bad. And maybe some of us can remember in grammar school, if you had a teacher and you picked up that pencil in your left hand, the teacher would come over and whack you and say, no, use your right hand. Well, there's some people that are simply left-handed. And if you're left-handed and can throw a fastball at 98 miles an hour, you're probably a rich left-handed person, okay? Uh, but, but we see the right hand is the seat and the place of honor, okay? The right hand is the seat and the place of honor. It signifies royal divinity. It signifies power. Uh, look at uh, Philippians, don't, don't turn there, but Philippians chapter 2 in the great Christ hymn. And we see that God exalted him to the place of honor and authority. And look at the distinction between how man looked at Jesus and how God looked at Jesus. When Jesus was on this earth, he was despised and rejected and hated and harassed, uh, scorned, uh, unjustly tried, condemned, crucified. And what did the father view his son as? As the servant, as the one who was obedient, he exalted him. So today Jesus rules over all things on heaven and earth. It is not up to us to determine whether Jesus is Lord. It's just simply the truth. He is. And there are plenty of people that don't like it and plenty of people that create a lie to get past it. Now, yes, this is Advent and we're focused on Christ in the manger. But he is also the Lord who sits at the right hand of the Heavenly Father with all power and authority granted to him. Now, how does he exercise this power and authority? He exercises it through the likes of us, okay, through his church, through the ones who are called and justified, through the ones whose lives have been changed by his grace and mercy. He rules in the midst of his enemies. He rules in the midst of his enemies. Now, now what leader does that? What leader gathers his rule and places it right in the midst of all the enemies. Usually rulers like some safety, they like some space, they like borders and keep the enemies out, but Christ rules in the midst of his enemies. Here we are, the church, the body of Christ, and we are surrounded by the, the not body of Christ, the unchurched, okay? And it is our job to influence them, and Christ rules through us. His power is made perfect in our weakness as we live out the things of Christ in the world around us. Okay? And Romans 12, 1 and 2 says we are to offer our bodies as what kind of sacrifice? Living sacrifice. Okay? It's we are to live out the things of Christ. Okay? I've got the things of Christ and and I'm going to hold them right here and I'm going to keep them to myself. That's just not the way it's supposed to be done. We are to give the things of Christ away. We are to live them out in plain sight before all who are around us. It is the beauty of the holiness of the lives of believers. It is the beauty of the obedience of lives of believers of Christ that overcomes evil and conquers the enemies. Martin Luther said, We must live in the midst of Christ's enemies, knowing that we Christians are not able to defeat and subdue the devil and the world by means of physical power or weapons. Faith, the word, and our suffering for Christ are our weapons. Luther wrote a commentary on Psalm 110. It's 120 pages long. Just be glad he's not preaching today. Okay, Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10.
Remember, this all comes under the heading of Christ is the king. Christ is the king who sits at the right hand of the Father, who exercises power. He exercises that power in this world through his church, and that is us. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. And this is Paul, and he's talking about the struggles that believers face in this world and how the way we are to live. Verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Okay? Divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. They are empowered, the weapons that we use, by our Heavenly Father. They are demonstrated in us, to, to us by the Holy Spirit. And they are powerful enough to destroy fortresses. That is the power of Christ in us. So let's go to the second one. Christ is the priest. Christ is the priest. Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind... Because usually the Lord swears by what? His own name. There's nothing greater than his name. He swears by his name. The Lord has sworn, so this is an oath, and and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now this refers back to the end of that first section in verse 1 that says, The Lord, that's our Heavenly Father, says to my Lord, that is the Messiah, that is who is the priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, we haven't seen the the name Melchizedek since Genesis chapter 14. So he shows up and he meets Abraham, and Abraham gives him an offering, a sacrifice. So uh, what the lesser always offered to the greater. So Melchizedek shows up on the scene, no family history, no lineage, but he is called the king of Salem. He is a priest and, and Abraham offers him an offering as the one who is greater than he. Now, a couple of things just to remind us about this. First of all, in Israel, a king could never be a priest as well. You could not mix the two. There was no commingling of this office. Kingship and priesthood were always separate. And we see two instances in particular where people got into trouble, where they tried to mix them both. Uh, Saul uh, tried to exercise some of the, the, the functions of a priest, uh, and he got in big trouble, we, we know. And then a guy named Uzziah uh, went and offered incense in the temple. That was only the priest's job. So what happened was to Uzziah was that he got leprosy because he attempted to gain the power of the priesthood as well. Now the reason for this, power corrupts. The more power you have, the easier it is to be corrupted. That's why in our society we have three branches of government, right? We keep that all those powers are to be separate so that they don't intermingle, so that the authority stays in its proper place. That's why it is essential that the king, the Messiah, is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek and not according to the order of Aaron, a human priest. See, Aaron had a lineage, a Levite. He had all this 
priesthood stuff that made him right to be a human priest. And along comes Melchizedek. He has no lineage. He has nothing but a priest ordained by God for a particular purpose. And that is to point to the things of Christ. That's what Melchizedek does. He shows up in the Old Testament and he says, I am a type of Christ. We see David writes in Psalm 110, he's, an, he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Again, tying Melchizedek and Christ together. Just read through the book of Hebrews. You'll see the name Melchizedek mentioned many times. So the bottom line is Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to him since he always lives to make intercession for us. He is the priest. You know, we don't have a priest in Presbyterianism. You don't come to me and say, Randy, let me confess my sin to you. I mean, you might want to talk about it, and that's okay. But you go to the Lord. And how is it that you're able to go to the Lord? Because Christ intercedes for us. He lives always to make intercession for us. When we walk, and and he says, in a sense, walk, we come to the throne of grace. We come to the throne of grace, and our Heavenly Father sees us through whom? Through Jesus the Christ, the eternal priest who intercedes for us. So that's why, as an example, when we pray, we pray in Jesus' name. Okay? I don't have it to offer it up myself. Christ intercedes for me. And the third one. The third one, we don't usually think about at Christmas time, and frankly doesn't sell very well. Christ is the judge. He is the judge. Now understand, we're in Advent, and Christ comes as an infant, and we don't think of the infant as a judge. We think of him as the coming Savior. Here's the babe, innocent, uh, ready to be raised and to grow and to live the sinless, spotless life. And Jesus says very clearly, I have come this time for salvation. Next time I come for judgment, for judgment. He is the picture of of the warrior, the picture of the judge. Verse 5 of Psalm 110. The Lord is at thy right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. Is this the infant that we celebrate in Advent? He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Remember, Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which is the king of Peace? Yeah. Okay. Jesus is the king. He's the king that comes to save. He is the king who also will judge as well. Now remember, here you have Jesus and his disciples, and they're at Caesarea Philippi. And he's asking them, who do people say that I am? And then he looks and says, but who do you say that I am? And what does Peter say to him? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he goes on to say what? The gates of hell will not prevail. Okay, now, for a long time we thought, well, the gates of hell. Well, um, uh, what, what does that mean? It means that nothing, even the gates of hell, can stop the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing can stop the movement of the church. There is no power on earth, no power anywhere that can stop the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the purposes of our Heavenly Father. 
and Christ will come as judge eventually. And when he comes as judge, there will be, he will judge grandmothers, and he will judge junior high students, and he will judge moms and dads. He will judge everyone, and there's only two aspects to his judgment. Either you belong to him because you have confessed your sin and repented and received him as Lord and Savior, or you have not, and there's no in-between. There's no fence-sitting when it comes to Christianity. You belong to him, and he will judge you as one of his, or you do not belong to him, and you will spend eternity in hell. But, you know, we have to explain away that truth because we don't like it. But it is the truth. It is the truth. He makes it very clear. These will go away into eternal punishment, but those of righteousness to eternal life. There are no other options. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, John chapter 3 says, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus is the judge who came into the world as a babe in Bethlehem, and he will return. He will be the judge when he returns. He is the priest who ever lives to intercede for us. Don't ever think you can't go to the Father. Don't ever think that he's not interested in what's on your heart. You can go to him with everything that you are, your joys, your sorrows, little piddly things that you might not tell anybody else. Tell to the Lord. Lay your heart before him. And he is also the king who now reigns and will reign forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this, this psalm points us to the fact that Christ, Christ is eternal. He's the eternal king. When there was only the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, when there was only the Godhead in perfection, and in your plan, you had planned that we would come into existence. That plan included the death of your son to pay for our sin, that he might be our savior, that he might come and intercede on our behalf, that we might be able to come right to you and know that because of the work of Christ, you hear our prayers, know our concerns, and love us. But we also know that he will return. And for those who do not believe, those who are not in Christ, he will be the judge that will send them to eternal death. And that is forever. So, Lord, we rejoice in the fact that of our knowledge of Jesus Christ, of your work and grace in our lives, that you have changed our lives and called us to this new life, that we might experience eternal life in him. Lord, if, if there are those here today who are questioning this and really don't understand it or, or who have never confessed their sin and asked Christ to be their Lord and Savior, that you would come upon them today, that the things of Christ would be real to them, that Christ the Savior, that Christ the King, Christ the Priest, that they would know his love and his care, that their lives would be forever changed because of your mercy and the sacrifice of our Savior. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.